Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Human Behavior Show. And today we have an excellent guest, someone who is such an expert. He's a psychiatrist, board certified in the U.S., as well as a neuroscientist. Now, that's a pretty unique combination. So when I started the Human Behavior Club, Dave and I had known each other for uh, a few years, and he was an early user of Clubhouse. And I remember stumbling upon some of his very interesting psychedelic club shows uh, where um, Dave got me onto the Tim Ferriss show. And, and that's something what I used to listen to pretty closely and I had the opportunity with whilst Dave was interviewing Tim Ferriss to kind of get onto his podcast and even ask a question. So it's been a super cool journey. And I want to announce that Dave, welcome to the show. Really happy to have you here. And the Apollo Neuro just arrived. You wouldn't believe it. Three hours ago, I got the delivery. So talk about timing. Oh, that is great timing. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. So That's incredible. That's impeccable. <laughs> you can't plan that, right? No. Podcast, Apollo arrives. <laughs> I download the app. Um, so guys, you're probably Apollo Neuro. So I was an early beta tester when, when it was still in development. So I got to use it, play around with it. And then Dave has obviously advanced it in the, in the last year or so. And I've got my hands finally on, on the Apollo Neuro. I'm in the UK. He's in the US. <laughs> Everything is the US market first. So it's available. And we're, we're going to be touching upon how you develop that as well, as well as what Dave's journey been like, what he advocates for in the mental health sphere. What, what are some of the breaking innovations, cutting edge things he does in terms of mental health? And we know how important mental health is these days and how much of an onus it is post-pandemic as well, almost a mental health pandemic. So first of all, Dave, Welcome, and I, I'd love for you to introduce yourself more formally. Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yep, you're loud and clear. Great. Um, so, yeah, thanks again for having me, Sohaib. It's a pleasure to be here with you again. Um, so I am, as you said, a, a psychiatrist and neuroscientist. I practice clinical uh, adult psychiatry, mostly with the trauma and addictions focus over the years. Uh, which to me are some of the biggest problems that we're facing on a public health level, um, particularly in the Western world. Um, so that's been something that has always interested me. I've been studying chronic stress for uh, over 15 years and really with a you know passion for understanding the way we make meaning about the world, uh, the way we see ourselves and how that influences and impacts the way that we live uh, and the way we feel and how we can change that uh, and really adapt, you know, tap into effectively what our, you know, I think, e you know, evolutionary psychology, the study of how our brains and, and bodies evolved over time to function together in the world uh, has shown is the most powerful coping strategy that we have, which is adaptation, the ability to adapt to stress or challenges in a, in a constructive way. Uh, and particularly collaborative adaptation, right? So the idea of being able to work together to to focus on you know ways that together we can adapt to stress and challenges in ways that are much more challenging to do on our own. And and so um, I'm also you know in that in that vein you know focusing you know a lot on trauma and addictions one of the ways that we recover from trauma and addiction most effectively is through collaborative adaptation it's through having not just a strong skill set yourself as an individual but having a strong community skill set and having support around you um, to help you get through the process uh, which is 
important for all of us, uh, regardless of whether we actually have a mental health diagnosis or not. And so, because all of us have faced trauma in our lives, there's no doubt about that. And we now know that, and science has shown that uh, is the case. It's just about how much and how much it's been processed and how much we've uh, coped with it and adapted to it on our own. And and so that led me down the path of studying uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy uh, with with the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, as well as uh, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, uh, which I practice currently uh, because this is the only legal psychedelic medicine for treating depression and trauma in very severe cases um, that we can use in the U.S., but also in most countries worldwide, which is which is exciting and it's really on the forefront of the way we we are changing how we see treating these complex disorders. Um, and that also led to the development of Apollo, which is a tool that we could give people to take home outside of the office, uh, which is a wearable first-of-its-kind touch therapy um, that uses touch as an output to effectively reinforce safety signals to the nervous system that allow us to cope more effectively with stress and adapt more effectively to challenges we're facing on a day-to-day. So uh, there you have it. Yeah, that's super interesting, uh, Dave. And you've always been in this kind of looking at the frontier of of psychiatry and and, and options that are not always be recognized by psychiatrists who've almost not open their eyes and looked elsewhere and just kind of followed the, the standard curriculum that we get taught in medical school, etc. And I think the evidence is emerging for a lot of these things now down the line, as we've seen in the last few years and with, with the investment and funding on how we can use so many different modalities to improve our mental health and, and our conscious states as well. And um, I find the concept of a pollen Europe pretty, pretty cool, right? Because the mo- I, I'm big into wearables, but most of the wearables I have, they don't alter or try and interact with your physiology, right? They're just trackers. They just track, collect right. data and feedback, but they're not changing anything. They're not, you have to then go and proactively do something to then, based on that data, to change your behavior. And then, you know, you get healthier in some way. But the Apollo through vibration and activation of the parasympathetic nervous system is super interesting because it's, it's actually helping you in that moment, right? Have I got that right? That is correct. I, I think that's the major difference between, you know, why we saw the need for developing tools like Apollo when, you know, we were working with patients, working with uh, veterans struggling to reintegrate into society. Uh, you know, I think we ultimately realized that there are, there are two forms, primary forms of learning that have been known about for many, many decades, uh, probably longer than that, but they've really been proven out in over the last, you know, several decades, I think, you know, one form is the form that you talked about uh, or alluded to a minute ago, which is called top-down learning. This is the form of learning we all experience in school, right? This is somebody telling you to do something and then you doing it or uh, with a wearable tracker, for instance, like an Oura Ring or an Apple Watch uh, or a Fitbit, it gives you information that says, hey, you didn't sleep that well last night, try this or try that. And you have to then go and do something differently. You have to change your behavior, which requires focus and attention, which is important. And we need to be, we need to work up to doing that. But I think when, you know, we were working with people with, with severe mental illness, what we realized was that, you know, when you, that, that it requires top-down learning, uh, requires a lot of attention and focus and ability to concentrate. And if you are already struggling 
with managing symptoms of trauma or depression or anxiety like many people are. I think now in the U.S. it's close to 50% of the population has one of those three issues, uh, insomnia being a big part of that. I think nine out of 10 Americans are now reporting they are struggling to fall asleep and not sleeping. We know results in long-term issues around um, mental illness, if not addressed, uh, then you know, it's really hard to focus. If you don't sleep, we all know it's harder to focus during the day. It's harder to center your mind. It's harder to concentrate for long periods of time, etc. And so asking somebody who is already underslept and already overwhelmed and overstimulated and, and, and exhausted or not fully rested to meditate for 15 minutes is almost like asking somebody to, you know, sign up for failure. It's a very, very challenging thing to do. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means it's really, really hard. And so we saw that in our clients, our patients, you know, people were just struggling with these tools that we were giving them and they were not getting better at the rate that we had hoped. And, you know, I think we saw that in the literature as well. And so we decided, you know, well, what if we look at the other part of learning, the part of learning that Eric Kandel won the Nobel Prize for discovering in 2000, right, which is bottom-up learning. And this idea that, you know, we've also, it's called, you know, also known as experiential learning, bottom-up being the body first. You experience a feeling, and then you feel it, and then you try to re- reconnect with that feeling or or bring that, bring forth that feeling by knowing what it feels like to meditate or knowing what it feels like to have a quiet mind or knowing what it feels like to be calm and peaceful before you fall asleep, even on a stressful day or, um, or knowing what it feels like to do any of these things to overcome a great challenge that you might've been struggling to overcome before. And so what we figured out was that there are actually very well studied tools for this. And and we know that, you know, one of my favorite books that talks about this is called The Inner Game of Tennis, which was written by a former USC famous uh, University of, South, uh, of Southern California famous tennis coach, you know, talking about how it was very, diff- very challenging often to teach players how to do things in sports when you tell them to do it. But when they watch someone else do it and they've given very, in- very limited instruction, if no instruction at all, they were able to learn much faster just by watching somebody do it the right way and then imitate them. And so this is something, again, that has been known for a long time, but we haven't really fully put it into uh, mental health practice. And so ultimately what we figured out was that by using things, tools like soothing music, uh, empathy, and authentic connection with our patients to make them feel safe and make sure they feel safe and trusted and non-judged in in our presence in the office or uh, over uh, telemedicine or giving them the benefits of soothing touch through something like Apollo and a wearable that we were able to calm the body and to help somebody by calming the body to feel what it feels like to be calm in a situation that might otherwise be stressful for them. And when they are able to recognize and be present with that feeling of calm in those situations, like talking about a stressful event or talking about past trauma, traumatic events, or, or even in their, especially in their day-to-day life, they can feel calm and be, and be aware of it. Then all of a sudden they realize, hey, this is something that I can do on my own. And so it's a, it reach, serves as a retraining tool for the body um, to get people calm enough to clear their minds. And once people feel calm enough, 
to clear their minds, they realize that they're capable of doing it and they can strive for that. They have the place to aim for, if that makes sense. I absolutely love that. Two things you said that, Dr. Dave. I love the recovery is, right? And then B, how you describe that process. I mean, it makes me think of people who pick up magazines to get a six pack when they're, you know, maybe going towards obesity. Like that's just not a natural step, right? You need to change behavior and slowly learn, like you said, um, these practices and um, a wearable device like Apollo just makes it so much easier. And we know as humans, I've done a lot of shows on the Human Behavior Club, behaviors are hard, right? Changing your behavior takes a lot. And why a lot of wearables have failed is, yes, we get this data, but so what? To motivate us to change, that process is difficult. And I mean, when I beta tested Apollo, it was pretty cool. And, and I know you're really been working on the app as well to really make it a very interactive and fun experience for the end user so they can easily start doing this without it being so taxing. The activation energy to require it is not much. You wear it on your wrist and it's, you know, pretty, pretty automatic, pretty easy to do. So uh, I, th- I think that's going to really help a, a lot of people. And Dave, you're, you're an excellent speaker. I mean, we could talk about so many different topics here. And, and I know you have... So- I think I I think I lost you for a sec there. So hey, what was so much it? knowledge to share. Sorry, I think cut out. I have so you have so much knowledge to share, and um, I do want to focus on. So we talked about recovery. We talked about kind of you know how people can benefit. I do want to ch- touch upon um, some of the specialized things you do. Now you have a lot of knowledge on psychedelics. Psychedelics is super interesting. Um, something that I didn't know much about until I started learning about it from you and others. Right. Um, and I get a lot of questions about how can one use psychedelics? Who should they approach to start the use of psychedelics? What kind of things can psychedelics be used for? And you get these from like entrepreneurs who want to be smarter, more creative, people struggling from things like anxiety, for example. Right. Um, I just love a very quick, or I know it's a very deep, deep topic from you on a basic understanding of what psychedelics are and how they can help. Sure. Um, yeah, this is a very interesting topic. We are still not really taught about this in medical school or medical training of any kind. You know, I think psychedelic medicines are still taught as substances of abuse, despite the very clear therapeutic benefits that they have when used properly uh, in safe environments, which is the most most important piece of the puzzle, because ultimately what psychedelic means Psyche means mind, delos means to show or to reveal. So what we're talking about is taking a medicine that, in the case of psychedelic medicines like ketamine, it's taking a medicine that reveals to us our minds or reveals to us parts of our minds that we were not aware of before, what what Freud called the subconscious mind, uh, the mind that's beneath our typical awareness. And so the best, best way to think about this is if you... You know, or one of the ways to think about this is if you imagine that our consciousness is a, is an iceberg and it's, you, you know, where our attention is just, and what we're aware of is just the tip of the iceberg. It's the part of the iceberg that you can see from the surface of the water that's sticking out at the top. And this is the part that we require to be aware of in our day to day because it's what we've been learned. It's what we've learned to be aware of for survival and for the things that are important for our day-to-day functioning. Now, when, when you take a, the, the most common way 
so that people understand that psychedelic means more than just drug-induced states. Psychedelic is really a, a describing a state of mind or of consciousness or conscious awareness, ex expansion of awareness to our more of our conscious material that's beneath awareness typically, beneath the surface of the water, that is always there. And so it it is accessing material that is always present and it doesn't require a drug. It doesn't require ketamine or MDMA or psilocybin. These are these are molecular tools that help us to access psychedelic states. The most common way that all of us access psychedelic states on a regular basis is in our dreams. So dreams are psychedelic states. Uh, and dreams have always been something that fascinated me from a very young age and I didn't really understand it because, you know, I think many of us don't understand the nature of dreams. But ultimately, you know, what we are experiencing in a dream state is that our ego, uh, when we are allowing ourselves to go into deep sleep, our ego uh, activity comes down, what we call activity on default mode network of our brain that represents ego and survival thinking for the most part comes down. And our brains are parts of our brains that don't usually talk to each other, start talking to each other in ways that they don't interact with when we're asleep or sorry, when we're awake, which is what happens when you take a psychedelic medicine, although via uh, the molecular activation of the medicine. And so what happens is all of a sudden, if you imagine that your, your sailing, your attention is you in a boat sailing or, you know, boating through the Atlantic and you see the tip of the iceberg in your normal day-to-day -day waking state, then in a dream state or in a ketamine-induced dream state or psychedelic state that you are, which you can also access with meditation is a very common way that deep, you know, deep meditators access, um, what we are describing as psychedelic states. And all of a sudden it's like you are aware at first of when you're awake of just the tip of the iceberg, the tip of awareness of, uh, what is around you. And then all of a sudden the water becomes clear and you can see that there's a hundred or a thousand or a million times more iceberg under the water. And that is all material that's part of your consciousness. And it's available to you if you choose to go in and look for it. But it's not always necessarily easily available to you in our waking state. Because if we were uh, always aware of it, we'd be extremely distracted and not able to function in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, this is material that is very important to our survival. It's important to us being who we are. And it's important to accept that material as part of us. But it's also important to remember that we have our brains have highly evolved certain periods of time that we allow that material to come forth into awareness and then other times where we don't. And and that's, you know, critical. You, for example, wouldn't want to become aware of all of your subconscious material when you're driving a car on the highway because you would be completely distracted by that material coming up and that would put you in danger. So so psychedelic states are really interesting because they allow us to, in a controlled way, dive deeper into what makes us who we are and into these parts of ourselves that we weren't necessarily aware of, or at least weren't taught to be aware of when we were children, um, and then use that material for different things like healing. And so with medicines like ketamine, which is the only legal psychedelic medicine currently available, with the help of, of guides giving you a you know, con you know, providing a safe experience for the participant, you can basically put somebody into 
a very gentle uh, dreamlike state whereby they are able to access subconscious material in a very intentional and thoughtful way for anywhere from an hour to two hours, and then it gently fades away. And then afterwards, they're left with an, a deeper understanding of themselves and a, and a deeper view of themselves that maybe they didn't have before, or they had before, but had forgotten about. And then the integration process follows, which is, how do I take what I've learned now from myself, from my subconscious material, and then put that into my day-to-day life so that I can I can be more whole, I can feel more connected to myself and everything around me. And so psychedelic medicines are very interesting because they allow us to have control, you know, set up controlled experiences for people to access these states for healing. But if used improperly, accessing subconscious material can also be very uh, distracting and very uh, confusing for us. And so if we, you know, these medicines have to be used very carefully because they can also facilitate access to material we were not expecting to see. Uh, They can expose us to traumas from our past. They can expose us to traumas from our family's past, and they can expose us to other uncomfortable feelings that, and, and, and uh, historical events that we may not have been prepared for. And so having a safe container with guide, a guide or ideally two guides to help you navigate those experiences is extremely helpful uh, and for those who want to find more information about any of this material, you can check out uh, some links I'll share in this chat. Um, maps.org is the um, multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies that provides a ton of information about psychedelic experiences um, and the studies going on with the FDA in the U.S. And then psychedelic.support is a non- another uh, company that uh, came out of the U.S. that provides information about uh, how to have safe experiences, how to access trainings around these experiences, um, and can be a nice source of information for everybody here. That was excellent, Dave, and I think that made it a lot clearer. So it seems like guidance is important, and psychedelic states have a lot of potential, but they have to be approached with caution. And as the research develops, it makes it easier and easier for us to kind of understand what is happening in the brain. And I find the brain super, super fascinating, and it's so cool to be able to have an expert here on this podcast, guys. The Human Behavior Podcast, we've had a lot of different uh, people who excel in the brain sciences, I like to call it, psychiatrists, neuro- neuroscientists, psychologists, um, etc. And then we've also had a lot of tech folk as well. But Dave seems to be able to be that fusion of all things startups, understanding of tech, wearables, uh, psychology, psychiatry, and neuroscience, which makes this a fascinating episode for me. So Dave, thanks so much for sharing about psychedelics. Now I do want to kind of swiftly move on to where you think the brain will move towards. So this is going to be a bit of a more outlandish question, which I do like to a- ask near the, the end of episodes. So I'm going to bring up the name Elon Musk, right? Elon talks about merging chips with the brain. He obviously wants human potential to A, increase in a lot of different ways. B, he also wants to cure certain diseases as well that originate in the brain. And I, and I know you're not a neurologist, right? Which, which guys, for those listening to podcasts, this will be available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, neurologists kind of deal with a lot of pathologies with the brain. Um, so what are your views on 
technology combining with human brains for mental health. Do you think these avenues could help us in the future to control things like our mood, almost mood hack, or do you think this is a utopian future? Uh, good question. Um, I would, I would actually say perhaps that it's neither of those two. It's, it's more of a dystopian future because what we're really talking about is, is, is denying our own potential or refusing to acknowledge that our potential in our current state of who we are is actually infinite and rather relying on artificial things that we create that are machine-based to substitute for our own innate infinite human potential. So I think that the, I think that there, while I am a huge fan of technology and the, and the benefits that technology can bring to humanity, obviously I created a, or co-created a wearable technology, right? So I am not by any means opposed to technology. I think technology on the other hand does need to be used responsibly. Um, and ideally non-invasively. Uh, I think that, you know, there are, you know, the caveat here is there are cases that we see as physicians, uh, in, in my field, in neurology, um, that are very, very severe cases, people who have had amputations, people who have had um, severe seizure disorders and disorders and issues that prevent them from functioning in their day-to-day life and having a good quality of life. And for those people who are really suffering, there are tools that have now come about that involve implanting, believe it or not, implanting chips in the brain um, called brain-computer interfaces, which the U.S. military has been working on for, I don't know, 30 or thirty years or more, um, which allows an individual to, for example, control an artificial limb without actually having the nerve endings left to control said limb because they've had a, you know, a severe uh, amputation or injury. And so, or, or having, you know, an implanted something stimulator, like a vagal nerve stimulator that allows them to control their seizures so that they can function in day-to-day life without having to worry about, about having uh, seizure episodes all the time, right? So these are very powerful techno- technological applications that are changing these people's lives, and they're very important. At the same time, there's a big difference between applying technology like that, which is a highly invasive procedure that requires opening up someone's body surgically and implanting a chip in the brain or in the body in some places or a stimulator device, a nerve stimulator device in the body surgically, which has its own risks alone from doing surgery like infection, like the risks of anesthesia, uh, you know, potentially stimulating the wrong part of the brain can cause problems. You see people who have deep brain stimulators implanted for Parkinson's disease, for instance, sometimes wind up developing uh, bipolar mania because the part of the brain that is stimulated that's, you know, millimeters away from the part that there was the that they were hoping to stimulate is actually causing these very, very um, intense symptoms of, of manic behavior, which is very challenging to control and very challenging to treat and is is an unintended consequence, basically, of a slightly misplaced neurostimulator. 
And I think most people do not realize if you've never worked with these patients, if you've never worked with people who have had these kinds of brain implants, uh, who are actually ill, how challenging it is and how far off we are from actually being able to do these things on a large scale. And then the question becomes, if the side effects are potentially so great that you could ruin somebody's life by accidentally making them manic, which is in fact what making somebody manic can do, or you could accidentally make them depressed by stimulating the wrong side of the brain when you're trying to treat depression, or you could accidentally give them an infection that causes them severe morbidity uh, or, you know, or, or, or um, severe injury in their bodies for years to come uh, afterwards. Is it worth tr- spending as much time and money as we might be trying to commercialize something that has such great risk when we have such great ability innately, inborn ability to regulate our mood and control our emotions and achieve our highest potential without such invasiveness. So I think the, the question, you know, so then that it forces us to ask the question, you know, perhaps, you know, while, while these tools, these technological brain implants, brain computer interfaces, we can call them can be really helpful and life changing for people who have no other option, like people like the amputees and like people who have, um, who have uh, severe brain injuries or stroke or seizure disorders, et cetera, while they can be very, very uh, helpful and life-changing for these people, is this right for everyone? And from the clinical perspective and the neuroscience perspective, I think the answer at this point is no, that, these are, that the risk is just too great. And so it forces us to ask the other question that follows, which is, well, are there other ways to augment human functioning, to augment our ability to achieve our highest potential, or think thought about in another way, is it possible that there are tools available to us in our toolbox, perhaps right in front of our eyes this whole time, or our nose, in the case of breath, this whole time, that if we were to put a little effort in, that these tools used properly could help us actually achieve or recognize that we could, we have so much more potential to achieve without surgical procedures, without implantation of foreign devices into our bodies. Are there other things, tools that we have right in front of us or skills that we have right in front of us that could help us do that? And that is where I think the most exciting part of the future of medicine is going. Um, which is really, you know, I think what in the past people might have called it like the human potentialist movement, but it's really just about recognizing that there is so much more to being human that we have not discovered yet. And it turns the human body and the human mind into, and the earth itself, which is all part of our lives in, inherently, into something that is fundamentally discoverable and very exciting. And I, I think that, you know, to give you an idea of how simple this can be for people to actually take this step into understanding your full potential or the fact that you may be capable of just a heck of a lot more than you ever thought or were ever taught is one simple concept followed by one simple tool. So the simple concept is that it's actually okay to be grateful for not knowing stuff 
And if you can be grateful for not knowing stuff, grateful for uncertainty, which is something that we often think of as a, as a, as a major stress in our lives, you actually turn it on its head and express gratitude for the unknown, right? Using the skill of pra and practice of gratitude, very ancient human skills and that we all have the ability to do and saying, thank you. Thank you for the unknown. What that does is it in some ways demystifies the unknown for us, including the unknown about ourselves, which helps us to comprehend that perhaps there's a lot more to what it means to be me than what I've been taught, right? Perhaps I was taught a, a story about what my parents and my grandparents and what society thought it meant to be human, but actually there could be a lot more to that that I haven't discovered. So by starting with just being grateful for the unknown, it puts us into a state of mind that opens us up to all this new information about ourselves and about the world that we may not, everything, all this information that's again coming from beneath the surface of the water in the, in the metaphor of awareness, the beneath the surface iceberg, that is useful information for how to actually achieve a higher state of being. And it's okay to not know what that higher state of being is. It's okay to not know what we could possibly achieve in this lifetime. That is also something to be grateful for. Because if we are only grateful for what we know, which is also important, but if we're only grateful for what we know and then we only fear the unknown, then we only cling to what we know. And we become afraid of everything else that we don't know, which in inherently, I think, you know, going along with the name of this, of this club and this show, it inhibits behavior change. It prevents behavior change. Behavior change is adaptation, and adaptation is our strongest skill set, and that's what helps us to grow, whether we adapt as individuals or whether we adapt as groups. This is the single most powerful human skill that we have evolved that is the reason why we were still exist on the face of this earth, is adaptation. So to deny ourselves the gratitude for the unknown is also to deny ourselves our strongest human ability, which is adaptation and therefore to stifle our own growth to the point where we think that to grow, we need to implant a chip in our brains. And therefore, we are literally putting ourselves at risk because we're denying our, our, our humanity. We're denying the thing that makes us so exciting to be human. And so doing that, just the expression of gratitude for the unknown is step one. That is what opens up all the doors to what is possible to be of be in terms of being you. And the second step is breath, actually being grateful for breath and being grateful for your attention and your ability to regulate your attention. And effectively, by when I say attention means what comes into our consciousness and what becomes part of us in any moment is based on what we choose to pay attention to or unintentionally pay attention to in the case of advertisements uh, or distractions. And by remembering to breathe intentionally, it actually allows us to control what comes into our consciousness. And it reminds us that despite all of the unknown around us, we're actually in control of what parts of the unknown come into us and become part of us. And so that is the tool that the key tool that helps us to navigate the unknown, like an explorer, like any of the explorers that we learned about in history class. It's just that rather than being explorers of the earth only and the physical earth, we are actually explorers of our own consciousness. And it is that as the foundation that serves to guide us through really achieving or 
getting on the path to achieving and understanding what it really means to be human. And I think there are very, very few people on the earth who, uh, in the history of humanity, some of which we know because we talk about them, right? People who have really pushed the limits of human performance, people like, uh, you know, incredible professional athletes, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, um, you know, people who push the limits of human thinking like, uh, Thomas Edison and Tesla, right? All these people and, you know, in, and many, many more are people who are examples of some of this kind of thinking, but it really does require all of us to remember and constantly remind ourselves and each other that we have the ability to do this and that we don't know what we're capable of. And that's okay to remind ourselves that we actually have and are capable of a heck of a lot more. And I think it's only once we have fully admitted this to ourselves and, and attempted this without surgical implantation that we can decide thoughtfully and rationally whether surgical implantation is the next step for humanity. But I think what we need to think about first is how do we test, put ourselves to the test and really understand what we are actually capable of and what we can actually accomplish as human beings by these natural practices that just require a few minutes a day and no surgery and then, and then see where we get and then, and, you know, put in a little bit of, a little bit of effort. You know, that's what we're good at. Let's, let's put in a little bit of effort. Let's, let's rethink what, let's do what we're good at, right? Let's rethink what it means to be human. Let's reframe the understanding of being alive. And then all of a sudden, as these opportunities open up to us, we'll, we'll get a better understanding of whether or not we need mechanical, electrical, you know, brain computer interface types of augmentation. At this point, I think we have a long way to go. Dave, I absolutely love that chain of thought. And I love the use of the word adaptation and how we achieve that first tier first before even thinking about these things. There's so much we can be doing outside of this concept of merging a machine to really improve human performance, improve our mental health, and look after ourselves uh, before we even start that conversation. And I think as a podcast, if I have to say, we have to quantify this information per minute, definitely the highest information per minute podcast i have done so far on the human behavior show i think we're like 46 episodes in here on the call-in app this will be live on spotify and apple podcasts so you guys you can be listening to and catch up on what dr day has been saying so dave to kind of finalize and finish up on you know i'm super interested in sleep i work as a sleep doctor as well part-time company called crescent health um they're super interested in sleep so i wanted to know with the apollo with the apollo device um i know you've done a lot of clinical studies and, and you validated a lot of things as well um, I'm looking really looking forward to have a play with it because I've got the eight sleep mattress that I use um, to optimize my sleep. I track things with the aura and, and now this layer of using Apollo will I think will complete my system. I also use the whoop as well for tracking with the aura because the problem with the aura is a ring. So when I'm weightlifting, I can't really wear it. So then I have to rely on the whoop. So, so these are some of the devices that, that I engage with or I'm using and Apollo is kind of this a new part of my armory, you can say to health optimization. So, with the Apollo, have you done any studies with sleep? Is there any kind of indications for sleep? I know you touched upon it earlier. Could you explain that a bit more to us? Sure. Uh, so, so I think thinking about what we were just talking about um, in terms of human potential, right? A big part of understanding human potential and why it's important to express gratitude for the unknown as the first step is because the unknown is a source of fear for many of us. We are taught to, to shy away from it. We are taught to focus on what we know and have what we know be a source of safety. So safety is critical because safety is what allows us 
to adapt more effectively. And the safety, what I mean by that is self-generated safety. There will always be th potential threats to our physical safety, our mental, emotional, spiritual safety, financial, legal safety. There, these things will always, these existential threats will always be there. But it's up to us to remind ourselves when we're not actually in a survival situation. And when we are actually in a situation where our our brains or our bodies might be overstimulated or, or, or what we call misappropriating threat, attributing survival threat to things like emails or the, the fear of not being able to sleep or the fear of what I might have to do tomorrow and all the work I have to do tomorrow and, and that kind of thing, which is not actually a real, although our bodies will often confuse that um, and therefore our minds will confuse it. And so um, that makes it impossible to sleep because if you are not able to feel safe, then our bodies shut down the sleep response. Because why would you want to sleep when you perceive yourself to be running from a lion? It's just not something that you want to do. And you and I talked about this, I think, quite a bit on our first podcast together on the Body Clock podcast and how, you know, Apollo, uh, which is now probably like three years ago or something, but now how, how uh, Apollo and, and works by restoring a sense of safety and balance to the body which is similar to the way that breathwork restores balance to the body and breathwork and touch, soothing touch restores balance to the body and helps us feel safe by reminding us that if we have time to pay attention and listen to these feelings, these soothing feelings of the gentle touch or the gentle vibrations of Apollo or the feelings of our deep breath, that we can not be running from a lion because our bodies would not allow us to pay attention to those things, those soothing feelings, if we were actually in a real survival-threatening situation. And so, again, safety is critical for actually sleeping. And so to sleep well, we must have our safety system functioning well, which requires sometimes a little bit of effort um, or the tools like Apollo or soothing touch or soothing music or breath to kind of help us navigate that and remind us that we're safe. Um, this is the fundamental basis for all sleep and healthy sleep is safety it's because sleep is our most physically vulnerable state. We are literally our, our, our survival brains start to turn off so that we can recover and rest and, 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 uh, restore ourselves. So, so with that in mind, when we were thinking about, uh, how to, how to get at the source of what causes or worsens most people's mental health, one of the big issues is that people aren't sleeping. And so if you uh, can help people to feel safer, then not only are they able to be more ready for the unknown, they're also able to sleep more which and get deeper, more restorative sleep because they feel safer. So their bodies are more willing to allow the brain to turn off, the survival brain to turn off, which allocates resources back to the rest and recovery and sleep system, which then allows us to feel more restored the next day and therefore more able to embrace the unknown and adapt to whatever's coming our way, right? And so you could see the, the, the loop starting to build here. And it's a positive reinforcement loop rather than a negative reinforcement loop. So the more that we engage in these safety practices, the better we sleep and then the better we function the next day and then the better we sleep and then the better we function the next day and the safer we feel on a regular basis. And so to actually test this, we were about to conduct a bunch of sleep studies in lab with Apollo, but then COVID happened. So we decided to reach out to all of our aura, our, all of our users and ask how many of them have aura rings. And aura ring at the time was, and I think still to this day, is probably the most accurate consumer wearable sleep tracker 
Uh, it's, it's very, very accurate compared to lab, uh, sleep studies, sleep study, um, um, equipment, which is very interesting. And so, and they also have an open data sharing or they did at the time have an open data sharing policy for research. And so we worked with, um, our, our users at Apollo to ask them to donate their aura data to us. And we got some back data and we got some forward data. So back data being before they ever used an Apollo and forward data after they touched Apollo for the first time and how that changed their sleep over time. And what we found that was so fascinating was that when you looked at people who would be using aura ring for six months on average before ever touching an Apollo, and then you looked at people for six months after they received their Apollo, that just by adding, and this is in over, over uh, 580 people in our first sample, which you can read about on our website, uh, apolloneuro.com on the research page, you can, what we saw was that just adding Apollo to, to one's life induced a statistically significant change, improvement in sleep, in mostly deep sleep, which was really, really interesting in and of itself. But that wasn't a huge change. However, we had people with Aura Rings and Whoop and Fitbits and Apple Watches who were sending us their personal data, like screenshots, and they were showing us they were getting 15, 20, 25, 40% improvements in deep sleep. And so we said, okay, if we're only seeing a very small percentage improvement across all 580 people, and we know that some people are getting much, much bigger improvements, what is, the, what is resulting in certain people getting these very, very big improvements, the 20, 30, 40% improvements, compared to those who are getting very small improvements? And so while this analysis is still going on, the first rounds of analysis showed that there were there was a direct relationship between how much touch stimulation people were receiving from using Apollo regularly and people who were not using Apollo regularly. And also people who started out with worse sleep also got bigger improvements. And so people who use Apollo, to give you an idea, three hours a day, at least five days a week, at least, were seeing on average... 18 to 19% improvements in deep sleep, 14% improvements in REM, 4% reduction in resting heart rate, and 11% increases in HRV over a three-month average period, which is pretty incredible because when you think about what those changes represent, simply by applying a gentle soothing vibration to the body that feels like soothing touch for three hours a day, five days a week, you're, we're seeing comparable outcomes to what happens in people who exercise, adopt a new exercise routine or a new yoga routine or a new breathwork or mindfulness routine for that same three months amount of time. They are also, at, in best case, seeing these similar, you know, 18, 19% improvements in deep sleep, 14% improvements in REM and reductions in resting heart rate and increases in HRV because they're doing activities that restore balance to the nervous system and balance to the body. And so this was really interesting because this was just done in a random sample of our users across, you know, 600 users across uh, the community with all of the variables, the other variables in their lives, them living their lives, you know, drinking alcohol, using drugs, doing all these different things. Some of them work out, some of them don't. And so, you know, across all these variables, we are still seeing these statistically significant improvements, which is really fascinating. And I think it, it just goes to show more than anything, the power of touch on the safety response system and how not just in the moment, but also over time, how this transforms the way we are able to 
get deeper restorative sleep and also the impact that has on our cardiovascular health and fitness. So this is something that will be continued to be explored. We now have 1,500 people enrolled in the study for almost two years, um, and we'll be <clears throat> publishing the first manuscript on that over the next few months, which is very exciting. That is super exciting, and that data is so powerful. I mean, the amount you quoted there as well. I am actually super excited to see where, where this goes with Apollo. I think that's super, super promising. Dave, thank you so much for sharing all of this knowledge with us here on the Human Behavior Show today. Really appreciate it. I think the listeners are going to be into it. I have a really special episode here where you're going to learn a lot. You'll probably have to listen to it a few times as well. And, and, and I love when people say to me, hey, we listened to an episode two or three times because there was so much information and we learned so much. So this will be available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, the Human Behavior Show here, recorded on Colin app. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to Dave and I collaborating with Apollo Neuro and seeing what to come. And you'll be seeing a lot more of Dave on the Human Behavior Show. Um, a lot of exciting topics to come over the next few months. And we'll be hopefully uh, announcing that partnership pretty soon. Um, and Dave, I want to know, where can people uh, purchase the Apollo? What, what is the website? Where can people follow you as well? What are your best social media channels to kind of keep up to date with your work? Uh, so if you want to find Apollo, the easiest way to find it is wearablehugs.com. Uh, or you can go to apolloneuro.com or apolloneuroscience.com. Any of those website links will take you to the Apollo website where you can find uh, a ton of information about how to manage stress and adapt to challenges more effectively, as well as um, understanding how the technology works, the current ongoing research and the research that happened long before us about uh, how we developed and figured out the way that Apollo works to induce these kinds of effects in the body. Um, and I think, and also of course, lots of podcasts and other interesting content. Um, so check that out, wearablehugs.com, apolloneuro.com. Uh, if you want to reach me and check out, uh, my work and my, uh, independent of Apollo and inclusive of Apollo, you can go to apollo.clinic, uh, or drdave.io, which will take you to my personal website and where you will have access to any of, uh, our, my previous shows and content. Um, as well as um, my clinic website, which is uh, how folks can make appointments with me if they're interested. Uh, and um, if you want to reach out to me on socials, I'm always happy to hear from you. Uh, we have uh, Instagram at Dr. David Rabin, Twitter at Dr. David Rabin, and on Clubhouse at Dr. Dave Rabin. And uh, stay tuned for the Human Behavior Clubhouse in... Um, on Clubhouse because we will be bringing, starting uh, next week, a, a number of really exciting interviews about health and well-being and consciousness to uh, the Human Behavior Club. So uh, please come and join us and you'll get a chance to interact with the experts and hang out with us. Doc guys, that was Dr. David Rabin, psychiatrist, neuroscientist, founder of Apollo Neuro. What an amazing episode. Um, super stoked to have him. I got to interview him. About a three years ago when I was at a mental health startup, O-Waves, super exciting. And since then, things have really progressed. And super excited for the partnership as well. So, guys, do let us know how you find the podcast. Give us a rating. And, yeah, a lot of interesting content to follow. Uh, one of our best podcasts today. I love having the absolute experts in all things health, human performance, happiness, mental health here on the Human Behavior Show. A uh, big shout-out to Colin, which is an excellent platform for helping us record these podcasts 
uh, it works out really well. And yes, we will catch you in the next show. Thank you so much, Dave. And I will catch you pretty soon. Bye, everyone. Thanks for having me. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye.